Welcome to the Progress Portland Podcast. I'm Tim Halber. I'm Kip Silverman. We are here working toward the city council election uh, one year away, officially one year away Mm -hmm. uh, here in Portland. And uh, our goal here is to talk to as many candidates as we can and uh, help you get a perspective as the listener on who the best people to vote for are and why. And with that in mind, uh, we are happy to welcome uh, Chris Flannery, who is running in district council. District three. District three. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Welcome. So, Chris, uh, maybe um, you could tell us a little bit about your your background coming into this. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, Chris Flannery, I use they, them pronouns. Um, I've worked for the city of Portland for past 10 years or so. Um, I am running as a private citizen, so nothing I say today should be construed as the Portland Housing Bureau's official standard. But uh, that'll come in handy later when we talk about affordable housing. So yes. yes. Great. Yes. I've got some opinions. Really Cop- looking forward yeah. to that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so I'm a I'm a union officer. I've been a union officer for about as long as I've been with the city with my local uh, AFSCME, Local 189. That's the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. A lot of acronyms I'm going to try to define today as we go through this. I have been in District 3, so I live in the Montevilla neighborhood. I moved in uh, summer of 2021. I got in by the skin of my teeth uh, into a home ownership situation, which mm-hmm. I never thought I was going to be able to do as a millennial. You know, um, I graduated college in 2009. So uh, as you can imagine, that was not the best economic situation (laughs) Mm -hmm. to come into. So I think a lot of my perspective has been shaped by, you know, the Occupy movement, the Women's March in early 2017, the summer of protests over the uh, George Floyd's murder. So a lot of what I bring to the table has been shaped by these events in my life. I mean, I was only like 12 when 9-11 happened. So I'm one of those. I don't know a world without it. Right on. You're wearing a AFL-CIO Solidary shirt. I am. I was very uh, excited to get this uh, <laughs> the shirt from over in uh, the Oregon AFL uh, convention this year. Very cool. No, no, no. appreciate that. I lurked around your LinkedIn, mm-hmm. saw the city of Portland work, been digging around your uh, website also, and, and the, uh, the three main platforms that you wanted to talk about. So we want to get into all of that today. Do we want to start with easy things like living wages or hard things like safety nets or, um, I mean, I mean it's when you say hard. easy and hard, I know I'm just, <laughs> I'm being obnoxious. Uh, <laughs> I think, I think starting with living wages is important. It's why it's my number one yeah. priority. You know, I came into the city of Portland from a nonprofit. I got into nonprofit work. I was an AmeriCorps volunteer in service to America, VISTA. That's what got me from the East Coast to the West Coast. Um, And part of that program is, you know, you're given a living stipend at the poverty level of the community you serve. And it's supposed to be a learning experience. That's Mm. my air quotes for the listener. And one of the things that I've learned over my time and engaged in both the nonprofit world and in in government service for uh, low-income folks, the number one intervention for poverty is cash. Mm Mm-hmm. Give people money, they will spend it wisely. I know it's very unpopular to think of handing somebody money and just letting them do what they think is the right thing to do with it, but it is effective. Uh, And living wages is one way. Most of us work, right? Most of us, the main source of our income is our work. And if we can have a living wage that allows us to stay in the community that we serve, Mm -hmm. then we can alleviate a lot of the ills of poverty. Houselessness, one of the major contributing factors is we can't afford the rent or we can't afford the, the mortgage. Right. We see a lot in the news about revitalizing downtown and spending all this money and a 53-person task force and something we've talked on this podcast before about 
um, and not a lot of conversation about revitalizing the neighborhoods mm -hmm. where people actually live because not many people live downtown. That seems to be a core concept that I don't see talked about by very many people on how to make where we live sustainable. So do you have more to talk about that? How we maybe not let downtown wither and die, but divert some of the money that we're currently investing in revitalization to make sure that everybody gets to enjoy in that process? I mean, I think it's an absolutely an important and very dense uh, topic you're raising. My experience with downtown, so the program I work in is uh, inclusionary housing. Uh, and so anytime you build something that's got more than 20 units, you have to provide some affordable housing in it. A lot of downtown is already owned, like the the parking structures even have been owned by often the same families or businesses for decades. Um, and there's a lot of land that could be built on, but folks are waiting for that right price to come. Mm. They're waiting for that right, uh, letting the pro forma pencil out. And I think one thing folks miss is often these developments are treated as financial investments, not as a need being met or a service being provided. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about downtown and you think about the um, business landlords complaining about all the vacancies, they also haven't lowered the rents. They're holding out to get the rents that they want. And there's some advantages to that. You can write off a mm -hmm. rent that you're not collecting for tax purposes, right? So I think there's some questions to really what are the issues that are impacting people downtown and not necessarily balance sheets. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd be very interested in alleviating the issues that people are encountering. But frankly, if you get to privatize your gains from capitalism, you shouldn't be able to publicize your loss. Like we, sh we shouldn't be shoring up the coffers of a, a corporation over providing services to our own people. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, um, I wanted to go back to, to labor and jobs. I'm excited about you as a candidate because you're talking about jobs. You, you forefront that. So how does City Hall have an impact on people's ability to make a living wage? You know, it's, it's interesting. In the state law, we have a preemption against municipalities setting their own minimum wage. Uh, however, there was also a preemption against inclusionary zoning. And we got that taken care of back in, I believe, 2016, 2017. So it's not an insurmountable barrier. Uh, at the moment, there are a couple of exceptions to that. So for example, if you're a subcontractor with the city, oh, say somebody working for the Joint Office of Homeless Services, or in another situation where city funds are going out to serve the community, the city of Portland is allowed to set a minimum wage for subcontractors. Mm. The city of Portland may set a minimum wage for anyone receiving a tax incentive or another benefit from the city. And so there are some of these places where we can establish these living wages, these good paying jobs, and at least quit contributing to the issue of people falling into to houselessness. I think the Joint Office of Homeless Services moved over 5,000 people out of houselessness last year. I believe that's what their website uh, said. But also that we've had another 6,000 people enter into to being unhoused. And so we've got to figure out a way to stop that bleeding and let the programs that are already working continue to serve folks and bring people along. You know, the most difficult folks to bring out of being unhoused have been chronically unhoused. So more than three years out living rough, you know, you might have lost your documentation. You might not have your ID, your social security card, your birth certificate. You might have been traumatized, repeatedly traumatized by the experiences of, of living outside, being swept. And the difficulty there is that once you do get somebody who's had those experiences into a unit, you can't just say, okay, you're good. 
You know, you need wraparound services. Mm -hmm. You need somebody to help them navigate our ever-increasingly complex bureaucracy so that you can get your ID back. And once you have your ID, then you can get, you know, registered with the, the DMV, you can vote again. And I think that's something that a lot of folks miss out on is when you don't have an address, you know, when you don't have your documentation, how do you shape the city that you live in? Yeah, I, I mean, to that end, you mentioned JOHS, Joint Office Homeless Services, the coordination between funds from the city going to the county to pay organizations to help unhoused folks and mm-hmm. other things. There's been ongoing controversy, not only with how JOHS spends its money, but the agencies it works with having challenges of a finding people to work paying living wages, Mm -hmm. the efficacy of those particular nonprofit organizations that are doing the work, uh, the city itself, and and I wonder if you have some opinions on this, contracts (laughs) with organizations to manage the low or no-cost housing, and they, I don't know the numbers of how many organizations we work with and how many actual buildings that are paid for for people to move into. But I see story after story of uh, just horrible conditions for those people. And eventually the organization deciding, yeah, we can't do this. We don't have enough money and we don't want to do it anymore. And closing up shop. There's one on the uh, up on 14th that there was just a story about um, where uh, the uh, organization had moved all the people out of the building because it was in squalid conditions, and they just decided that would be $15 million to renovate, and they're not going to move anybody back in, and they're looking for somebody the, to uh, the sell The elder building to. with the Legionnaire's yes. disease outbreak? That I mm-hmm. think that's it. And, and it seems like this is pretty commonplace that we contract out services to other organizations that aren't delivering, mm-hmm. and that by the time anybody knows about it, it's a huge problem. People have to leave rather than getting in front of it. And from your perspective, working in that world, what can a more effective city council, a more effective set of bureaus do to just do this better? I think there are a myriad number of ways to approach it. And I think it's really going to depend on who gets on city council as to which approach makes the most sense. You know, we talk about all this work that's been subcontracted out. So if you look at the organizations that are doing it, um, places like Central City Concern, Cascadia Behavioral Healthcare, Transitions Projects, they were actually able to unionize with AFSCME Mm -hmm. um, because their services they're providing are public services. And so there's this trend over time of taking public services that people expect out of their community and instead of providing them through good paying government jobs subcontracting out because we can think think we're going to save money on it but Mm. what you're saying and what we're seeing is that it's not having that that knock-on effect what we're seeing is folks taking money getting something set up and then having to back off later because they haven't planned adequately for deferred maintenance needs or they Mm -hmm. haven't planned adequately for what happens if the rates double, triple within a couple of years. When we are thinking about those types of large infrastructure investments, like those 40, 50, 100, 200 unit buildings, we often see those are put together with such an array of funding that they are reporting to 12, 13, 20 different folks about what they're doing with the money. The number one 
program that provides affordable housing in this country is the low-income housing tax credit. It's done through the treasury, not through housing and urban development. You know, it's just the way that how our current governance is set up is we would rather put money into the hands of contractors. There's always this thought of, well, if we privatize it, the the forces of the free market is going to make it work better. Um, And I would argue it's been shown it hasn't worked better. It just introduces that profit motive. And it means that when something does take a downturn or where there is an issue, it's not worth it to that for-profit entity or Mm -hmm. even a nonprofit that's just trying to balance their books. It's not worth it to them to continue to put money into that asset. Now, at this point, we could talk about should the city bank the land or the building? Should the city acquire the building? There's also the potential of saying maybe the community doesn't want government intervention in this case, and you allow that particular asset to enter foreclosure and see what happens through the powers of the free market. I'm personally on the side I would prefer and what I would aim to do is to get more direct services that the city provides in the hands of city workers and into a place mm. where our you know, folks in our community can have a direct say in, in how that works. I would love mm. to see things like participatory budgeting. So that when we do have a council that comes together and knows how much money we have to spend, over $7 billion, where is that money going and what's the priority? Because one example, I remember y'all might have been paying attention when uh, Mayor Wheeler rescinded the parking rate increases that was going to save uh, Peabody, I think, $8 million in the budget. It was like, no, we can't have people pay an extra 40 cents an hour for parking because they won't come downtown anymore. So this was this big, you know, hubbub Mm -hmm. about $8 million and how we just couldn't do it. And then they turned around and I saw in the paper just a few days later that we bought a parcel of land at the base of the Burnside Bridge for $8 million. So there's money for some priorities. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, currently with the, the city reorganization, they're talking about hiring new, not just a city manager, but deputy city managers Mm -hmm. and then to have staff for each of them. And it's, it keeps increasing the budget estimate and we're also talking about 56 layoffs at bureau and development Mm -hmm. services we're also talking about uh possible layoffs at pbot or the discontinuation of very popular important programs like the bike and walk routes to school program that people have found to be very encouraging i really love to see it in my neighborhood because the more people we have actually walking through our streets there's more of that sense of community and you Mm -hmm. see fewer things like trash. You see fewer broken windows. I don't care for the broken windows theory of policing, Mm -hmm. um, but I do prefer community style police initiatives over this. Let's drive through with our windows up Mm -hmm. kind of approach. Hello, Portland. I am Daniel Lyman, and I am the host of a brand new podcast called people of Portland. People of Portland is an in-depth interview podcast where we get to know the people that make our amazing city the great place that it is. I will be talking to artists, politicians, musicians, chefs, comedians, drag queens, business owners, writers, and every Portland weirdo that I possibly can. And don't worry, I'll be asking our politicians important, heavy-hitting questions. Oh gosh, I'm definitely not there. I don't I don't have the muscles or enough hair to identify with that. I'm too old to be a twink. Check us out at peopleofportlandpodcast.com and on Instagram at peopleofportlandpodcast. Let's let's talk about the restructuring piece of it. The idea of having a city manager, I'm excited about, mm-hmm. um, along with deputy city manager. Something I champion really hard in the public stuff is that our bureaus are so siloed and 
dysfunctional as far as working with each other that it will take several years to undo all of it, recombine it, make things work smoothly, although it comes at a big cost. Mm -hmm. In 2017, I think the city budget was a little over $4 billion. Uh, For 2024, it's over $7 billion. I'm curious on your thoughts on the extra $3 billion we have to spend and how it's being used. Yeah, well, I think the first thing is I I wonder if there really is three extra billion. Or, you know, are we taking into account the increased costs that folks are, are experiencing themselves at home, right? Like a lot of folks had their rent go up or you might have had an increase in your uh, your grocery bill. And in a lot of ways, I think the, the city budget can be impacted in similar ways. We have um, cost of living adjustments for wages. And so it's keeping up with inflation where you might have, you know, a leased office space for the city where the lease has increased. So mm-hmm. I haven't taken a, a deep dive on the budget. Okay. Um, I would just start with, I don't know if all $3 billion is extra. Um, I think in a lot of ways, when we see these big increases in costs, we assume we should be getting more. Um, and I think that's a, that's a fair assumption and desire. Uh, but being able to track down where the money's going and how to prioritize the things people care about is going to be a bigger issue. Mm. Um, and that's why I think, again, participatory budgeting yes. would be an amazing tool for us to have as a community. With the current restructure going on, there's an interesting, I think, balance of power being pushed on from uh, our mayor and our commissioners and trying to figure out, you know, the first idea was let's be ready by this July 2024. Let's have a a city manager in place. Let's let's test run this. And that our commissioners pushed back and they Mm -hmm. were like, no, we have a job to do. We were elected to do this job. We want to keep doing this job until our terms run out. Could they both be right? Could they both be wrong? Sure. Um, I think at the moment, what's frustrating me is I don't feel served by this power play. Like I said, I'm, I'm over in Montevilla. I'm, it's mostly Southeast District 3, but we've got a, a couple of Northeast neighborhoods. So like Madison South, Roseway and Rose City Park, along with Southeast Uplift, um, the big Southeast block of neighborhood associations and less Selwood, no Selwood, no Reed, no Moreland. Um, and that area, we have decent home ownership rates. We have really good uh, voter registration rates. We have still some, some allegedly affordable housing um, out in, in outer uh, southeast. Uh, but overall, I feel that the folks in, in District 3 are a little bit distinct from the other areas of town in that I feel like we've got some of the most politically engaged folks. Um, and that we have, or at least people, maybe I should reframe this. We have a community that has the advantages that allow them to be politically engaged. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one way that we could expand that access is to provide childcare, is to provide meetings that aren't at a Wednesday at 3 p.m., mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. I, I would love to see more of that. If you're somebody who has childcare obligations or elder care obligations, if you're a solo caregiver, these are all things that can really impede your ability to have a voice in the process, especially in the city process. Um, I don't know if you've, you've had the experience yourselves of, um, I, I remember you talking about testifying at city council mm-hmm. meetings. and A few times, yes. Yeah, and folks have served on the, the different advisory councils. And it is incredibly frustrating to go through all that effort and all those best practices about community engagement. And then at the end of the day to have the commissioners say, we hear you and we're ignoring you. 
Yeah. We're going to do it this yep. way because I'm the smartest guy in the room and this is my idea. Yep. So yeah, I think as we move into this new phase, the important thing will be to give the accountability measures teeth because you can get a counselor elected and you can get them you know, out of office by electing somebody else. I, I understand that as the accountability measure, but to actually get the community and the different districts to have a voice in the day-to-day mm-hmm. of the city, I think is going to be essential if we want to have the type of responsive government that I think folks are looking for. I wanted to back up a little bit and learn a little more about you. Um, So what drove your passion for public service, for city Mm -hmm. issues? Did you have a mentor? Were there books that you read? You know, what was, what, what brought you into this field? Thank you. Well, let's start with, I was raised by a nurse and a postal worker. Um, And so immediately there's this, you know, growing up in the sense of you give back to your community. You want to do something that creates a net good for, for the people around you. Uh, You know, my mom was an ER nurse for 40 years before she just retired. Um, You know, my dad switched to nursing uh, later in life. My sister is a labor and delivery nurse now. I'm, you know, the one who kind of went out to the side. I was like, no, I'm not going to the medical field. I'm a little too squeamish. But um, instead, I'm going into politics. So eh, maybe different types of squeamish. (laughs) That's a different type of squeamish, (laughs) yes. (laughs) Um, You know, when I went to college, I went to the College of Charleston. Um, So originally from New York, moved to Charleston for 12 years. So my accent's never recovered. Still not quite sure where, where it belongs, but <laughs> I heard a y'all in there. The the y'all's great. It's a, a it's gender neutral useful, group. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's been very helpful. Um, you know, at the College of Charleston, I started studying sociology, and so you know, understanding how our communities interact and how people behave in groups, and why sometimes we vote against our own self interests because we've been essentially lied to. Or we've been given a story where we prioritize our in-group identity over our own day-to-day necessities. Uh, And that is a very academic way of saying sometimes people in power tell us, hey, look at that guy. He's trying to come for your dollars in your pocket while they're actually hoarding most of the pot to themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think the the academic grounding in sociology, I was also a a women's and gender studies minor. Um, It really helped me start to identify the way that power works and moves in our society. Uh, and then I failed. I failed out of grad school. I couldn't find a job. I was uh, in my car driving between my sister's house and my mom's house to go watch the kids here or go watch um, a friend's kid over here to get a little pocket money. Um, and I had no idea what to do with my life. So I did AmeriCorps. Um, I did AmeriCorps Vista. And it's what moved me from the East Coast to the West Coast. Um, my foray into grad school had gotten me, I had gotten an internship up in the DC area for Formerly Western Interfaith, now Cornerstones, but it was a housing organization. They did everything from emergency shelter, transitional apartments, home ownership, all the way through to foreclosure prevention. Mm -hmm. So end to end, this was an organization where their shelters were, I think, state funded, but the rest of their programs had a mix. And I was their evaluation intern. And evaluation is just another fancy academic term that says, does this work? Show us it works. With that experience, I got the AmeriCorps Vista position with a small nonprofit in the Salem area, now defunct because they there's this develop or die model and they didn't get a tax credit development deal in three years. And so they were just, they were out of luck. They ran out of money uh, and they uh, their assets were distributed to other nonprofits in the area. But at that Vista position, uh, I had a, a mentor, Chuck Fisher, and he was great. He was a Kentucky guy, uh, warrant officer, retired from the Navy. <laughs> 
never left him the little bit of a drawl and the I think what the Navy gave him in terms of discipline and structure. But Chuck was great. He, number one, uh, tried to have every meeting where he could provide food. He did because he knew what vistas made. Right. It was set at the poverty level of the area. Mm. I was lucky because Salem included the Portland area. So I got a whole seven hundred and fifty dollars a month to live off of. Um, But they also made us eligible for food stamps. So I was a SNAP recipient. I had my Oregon Trail card. Um, and still, if I had not had the support of my family, cause my, my parents still helped me out with like my car insurance and stuff, I would not have been able to take this position, which mm. is really what launched me out. So there I was in Salem, you know, not making a ton of money, lots of potlucks with friends, right. Navigating the, the snap, right. You get your Oregon trail card, but you have to recertify every year or when your income changes or, like my, my partner at the time put down too many racial identities on the application. So they just labeled him as white, but he was a visibly melanated person. And so it was like, we might need to fix this. Like, why did y'all do this? Getting on the phone, trying to chase down who in this government bureaucracy to talk to. Mm-hmm. And again, so there's another kind of place where my experience is trying to navigate it as somebody accessing the benefits. And then as somebody working with the residents of the small nonprofit, which was a community development corporation, meaning they built affordable housing. Um, It was just staggering the amount of time it took to get in touch with somebody to figure out who to talk to, to figure Mm -hmm. out what you needed to say. Because sometimes you say the wrong thing, and you're kind of back to square one, or people think you're, you're seeking something that you're not really supposed to get. Kind of like going to the ER, and you're trying to say like, yeah, it hurts, but not that bad. Like, yeah. And it's, it's frustrating, especially that when you need services, you have to put on this respectability display. Mm -hmm. So down in Salem had this AmeriCorps job. They hired me on after it ended, but we already saw the writing on the wall for the budget. Uh, And so when I got a call from somebody who I had met at a training program, um, the housing development center up in Portland uh, did this asset management and portfolio preservation training. It was an 18 month training on how affordable housing portfolios can be made sustainable. And they had this idea of a triple bottom line. You have your, your accountant bottom line, right? You don't want to be in the red. You have your mission bottom line. And then you also have your financial uh, sustainability over time bottom line. Mm. So I had just graduated from this program when I got a call from um, one of my next mentors, Javier Mena over at the Portland Housing Bureau. Um, He's left. I now believe he's over at uh, Beaverton. But I got a job with the, um, at the time they called them the asset management team. And it was essentially the compliance for all of the housing bureaus, affordable regulated units. Now, when I say affordable, it essentially means roughly 30% of the income for the the tier of income you're in. And some common tiers that are used are 30% of the area median income. This is likely somebody who needs wraparound services. They might be on a fixed income. They might have no income. They might have a dual diagnosis of substance use disorder and some other type of mental illness. So 30%, very, very low rents, very, very low income limits, often has to be accompanied by wraparound services. 60% of the area median income, often called workforce housing. The bulk of the units in the portfolio, as I understood it, were at 60% of the area median income. And so this could be you have you know, a job that pays you, say, $40,000 a year, and you have a kid. And that's going to bump you right in to about the, uh, and you can always look up the area median income limits on, on the website. They change every year and they're shaped by the incomes in the city. So with these different 
tiers of housing regulation. Let's see, when I joined, there were about 13,000 regulated units in the city of Portland. And there used to be a list. There used to be a website you could go to and be like, where do I find affordable housing? Mm. That went away. Mm. Nobody was funding it anymore. There used to be a program where we as the local municipality and the state and some other organizations came together and did our inspections together to reduce the impact on the tenants during those inspections of the units. That went away. Mm. Nobody wanted to fund it anymore. And so that sort of experience of coming into the city and being like, wow, there are so many resources. And then, but how do you find them? So today, if you wanted to find an affordable unit, what would you do? I have no clue at this point. <laughs> and I, I get a lot of phone calls about that because they yeah. see inclusionary housing and they dial the number. And I'm like, hey, yeah. this is Chris. How can I help you? Um, it's like, I, do, do I qualify? So, well, we don't qualify people. Okay, where do I go to get qualified? Well, you have to talk to each individual building. Mm. Um, wow, wow. And there's, there's no centralized sort of search. There's a PDF online. You know, we do what we can. Right. You know, if somebody calls me, I'm going to be like, here's my best advice to you. Do you have a relationship with a property management company already that you trust? Call them, ask them what they have available oh. that's affordable. Or here's some of the, the largest providers in the area. I would call them and ask. Or do you know what part of town you want to be in? Find a nonprofit that serves that part of town. But there is no centralized location for, I qualify as low income, where do I get a unit? It doesn't exist. That's staggering. I, I know that 2-on-1 Info does a lot of intake and mm-hmm. initial fielding. Um but they also just refer you to a website mm-hmm. or to a phone number to call. They can't actually answer a lot of the questions. Yeah. So that's staggering that there's no place to go. There's I, no place to go. It's true. Mm. And a lot of people do get frustrated. And so, like I said, I'll get calls about it. Other people at the Housing Bureau will, will get calls. And we would love to be able to help, but we don't have that list either. Part of, the, I think, the unintended consequences of the way our affordable housing uh, industry is set up is that it's all privately owned somewhere or another. Well, not mm-hmm. all of it. There are a couple of public housing developments, but right around the time the Civil Rights Act was passed, there was a sudden disinvestment in all public infrastructure. Shocking, right? <laughs> Shocking. Um, and we still haven't recovered from that. I think that's a, a, the point you think about those sort of um, the lead paint in old public housing developments. And it's because the 60s and 70s were about the last time that we were really building them. So most of, I should say, the uh, the affordable units in town are owned by some organization or another. And they don't talk to each other. And they don't, I mean, they report to us each year, but we get a point in time. So who was living there at the end of the year, tell us, and we'll make sure their incomes are low enough and their rents are low enough. Um, because that's that's the idea. It's means tested. So you have to make under the, the income limit and you'll be charged under the, the rent restriction. I think the complexity that, that, that you're detailing mm-hmm. is one of the biggest challenges, um, something we've talked about on the podcast before something that I learned about uh, the short time I worked in City Hall was a lot of these big development companies are like, yeah, we're going to make 20% affordable housing. Mm-hmm. Then as soon as they're ready to start renting, they are like, oh, you want to know something? We change your mind. We're going to pay a pittance of a fine and not have to go into this. Uh, that just happened at the Ritz-Carlton. Somehow the Ritz-Carlton was going to have affordable housing. Um, well, they signed the agreement. They signed the agreement, but they can back out apparently if they pay it off. So, that's, or, or is you, that not correct? Well, or, it's yeah. 
it's correct in some ways. Okay. Um, and then there's also the the issue of public opinion about it. So the the Ritz Carlton they put in their plans for for a permit, and it was enough units, and they were like, okay, we'll do affordable housing, we'll do the inclusionary housing thing. And then we found out later that that was not what they intended to do. And this kicked off an issue that, frankly, I'm going to leave for the lawyers to figure out. Sure, that's fair. <laughs> um, but the, the end result is, essentially, they are going to pay the fee in lieu. And the, mm. the, the fact of the matter is, you can choose to pay the fee in lieu up front. And the, the fee in lieu is a certain dollar amount per square foot of residential area. Central city, the amount's higher. Outside of the central city, the amount's lower. But the reason why I think this is so frustrating, this the Ritz-Carlton situation to everybody, is why would you say you're going to provide it when you didn't have the intention to? Right. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to misspeak and get on the mm-hmm. wrong side sure. of the uh, the city attorney's office. So I will leave this you at... You can defer. That's okay. <laughs> well, I mean, let me ask if you think that the in lieu fee is actually significant enough for developers as a as a consequence like is it is it tit tit for tat like if you choose the in lieu fee can housing be built and can it be built so it's not just out in the boonies i i think it's going to depend on who the developer is because the the fee in lieu is based on the area of the city and so if you are talking about i'm in let's say Lentz, right? So so Lentz is getting a lot of development recently. It's really kind of popping off in terms of people wanting to, to build out there because it's got some of the cheaper land prices, uh, but still closer in than some of the other neighborhoods. Uh, so if I'm going into Lentz and I'm building, actually, I would rather provide the affordable housing and get the tax incentive. I'd rather get the system development charge waiver. I would rather get those development incentives because it's not just offsetting the cost of offering the affordable units. Frankly, right now, the market rate in Lentz kind of qualifies at the 80% affordability level. So you're not taking that much of a hit uh, in terms of providing the units and the incentives uh, are really attractive, especially because they kind of shave off that money at the beginning of your building's tenor. On the other hand, if I'm in a place like Slabtown, you know, if I'm if I'm in close close into the city, but not in the central city, and it's really expensive to develop there, I might not be getting enough offset to make providing the affordable units cost neutral to me. Now, should it be cost neutral? That's a different question. Uh, but one of the things to know about the inclusionary housing program is it is calibrated to make it more attractive to developers to offer the units than to pay out. And so within the realm of what the program staff could push, the fee is as high as they could get it. Hmm. That's good to hear. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. Uh, well, you are a wealth of information on housing. Certainly that's, that's, uh, that's awesome. It's great to, to know that someone of your experience. I'm uh, fluent in affordable housing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, but my focus isn't housing because ultimately to be able to afford housing, you have to make enough money to mm-hmm. pay the rent, to pay the mortgage. Yep. Um, and we can't save our way out of a spending problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a lot of ways, being in the affordable housing field is like, okay, we've got one element of part of a solution, but we can't just keep making enough affordable housing, this rent-restricted housing, to cover everybody who's not making enough money. The costs to provide the housing are intense, right? Like especially when you're yep. talking about requiring 99 years of affordability, um, whereas if you put the money directly into people's pockets, that's mm-hmm. going to make an immediate difference for them. And it's also going to allow them to participate in the regular, regu- the unregulated, I'll say, um, housing market. Right. Right. 
And if instead you put all the money on punishment and enforcement to punish people for poverty, mm-hmm. then then that's the cycle you're going to be stuck with, yeah. right? I'm going to borrow a line from uh, DA Mike Schmidt. I uh, heard him, him speak over at House District 45 uh, Twee Trans uh, Constituent Pizza Night. Highly recommend it. She's, she's great. Uh, Mike Schmidt was saying jail is the most expensive housing option we have. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's very good. Yes. And, and it's, it's true. Frankly, by the time you account for not just the cost of putting somebody in prison overnight, but the cost to, okay, now they might have a court date. Are they going to make the court date? Mm-hmm. You know, are we now going to put the, um, costs in, into the equation of getting that person now has a bench warrant for missing their court date? Yeah. Or even if you bring somebody to jail and there aren't enough beds, so you get, you know, your shower, your meal, your overnight and you're back out, but you're not really any more prepared for being able to fend for yourself. Um, so yeah, I agree. Absolutely. When we criminalize existence, no one's winning. Yeah. Oh, hundred percent. And, and, and again, let's go back to, to your website where your platforms are living wages, safety net and entrepreneurship. You've touched on living wages. You touched on safety net, uh, small business entrepreneur entrepreneurship. entrepreneurship. I know entrepreneurship. Yeah. <laughs> it's those French words. They're hard. I, it's very hard. Yeah. So uh, yeah, let, let, let's talk about community investment and small business and keeping business where it exists in neighborhoods and building that up. Yeah. So one of the things I love about Southeast and all of District 3 is, frankly, I think we're the coolest. I think we have the best little shops, food carts. I mean, you, you can fight for District 2. <laughs> I, I think it's a fair fight. But uh, yeah, Hawthorne, Belmont, Division, there are all these places Absolutely. where you can go and get just the wildest. You can. There's a whole terrarium store where you just you just go and build one. Like, how does that exist? <laughs> that's cool. Um, right. And that is, that's the thing. It's cool. And it makes you want to go out and it makes you want to explore. And these great little walkable, um, you know, tracks of areas where Absolutely. I can go and get a cup of coffee. And then I can stop in a thrift store. And then I can check out a record store. Like, there's still movie rental stores in Portland. And I think right. that's what people love about Portland. Movie Madness. Plug. Movie Madness, absolutely. Yay. So I'm an import, right? I mentioned I moved moved here about ten years ago, um, and I'm not the only one, and I think I'm not going to be the last either. So Portland's going to continue to attract people because of the culture, because of, excuse me for this, but because of the vibes, right? Yeah. Portland's a great place. We have great food. You can find great shows, whether you're talking about an art show or a music show. Mm-hmm. And part of what makes all that happen is really, really motivated individuals who are willing to like put their whole lives into their small business, into their art, into what they want to make real in the world. Mm-hmm. And so for small business entrepreneurship, one of the great examples, I think, is you look over at the Mercado down in Foster Pal, right? It's a Hacienda small business incubator, essentially. Um, and so you've got small businesses get a chance to, and I'm not entirely clear, I'm not representing Hacienda here either, but my understanding is they sort of get like a break on the, the rent to sort of spin up these small businesses so that they can then go out on their own. There are a lot of great places in town that the thrift store model kind of has this, you rent your little space and you have your own sales mm-hmm. that are associated there, almost like a co-op or a mercantile, mm-hmm. which I love it. Amazing, right? Who doesn't love a flea market? Um, when we're talking about people having that passion and wanting to do it, I want to be able to support them. I want somebody to say, listen, I make the best damn hot sauce in town. I'm going to start this small business. And they should be able to do that without worrying about how am I going to get health care? Mm-hmm. You know? 
what about childcare? Like childcare is a huge um, barrier for some folks to participate in the economy and mm-hmm. in our communities. And there are some programs that already exist that could be expanded. There's employment related daycare, right? And that's if you make under a certain amount of money, you can get assistance with, with your childcare. Um, but again, you've got that means testing that kind of puts a lid on, on who could participate. And I'm not sure about y'all, but it, it feels like more and more the difference between what's considered the poverty line and what actually allows you to live and live well in our city mm-hmm. is getting vast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and finding all the right forms and all the right agencies and, mm-hmm. and just the struggle of getting something spun up seems just insurmountable to begin with. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I, I really appreciate that. And, and I, I love the uh, idea of keeping money in the community um, because Absolutely. that's where um, if you're fortunate enough to be able to purchase a home here, you have some of the highest property taxes anywhere. Mm-hmm. Of course, we don't have a sales tax. So how does that all even out? You know, so maybe that's not a bad thing because sales taxes are pretty punitive. But anyway, um Making sure the money stays in the neighborhood and reinvests in the neighborhood rather than going to, you know, um, in 2017, we had a push to divest from Wells Fargo, city money from Wells Fargo. And Mm -hmm. that went a little bit down the road and stopped, Um, but also not just go out of Portland, but uh, out of your neighborhood and figure out how do we recreate the uh, an equitable tax base and redistribution of the money coming in to keep feeding rather than going into yeah. one direction or another and what is equitable you brought up um uh community-based budgeting mm-hmm. and i don't know that i've heard anybody else really talk about that uh participatory budgeting and i love that idea um what i'm uh, would love to see is how city council makes that uh, a, a thing coming forward. Um, and I, I'm kind of jumping around now, but about how under the new structure, how we engage uh, will hopefully not be come downtown in the middle of a work day and get a three minute slot, but you right. can go to a regional office of your district and meet with your representative and say, I have a concern and actually have a sit-down conversation with somebody. Um, now, so, do, you, do you know the latest mm-hmm. on that? Because I heard an interview with the man who was in charge of making all this happen, making the recommendations for the budget and all that. Michael Jordan? Michael Jordan, yes. Uh, that's why I don't remember his name, because he's <laughs> he it's has so the name obscure. of a celebrity. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, and Michael Jordan, he was talking about how the decision over whether the new city councilors will, will be at City Hall or will actually have district offices or not still hadn't been decided. Have you heard anything on that? My understanding is the plan is to have district offices at some point, uh, but that currently there's there's the discussion of whether to decide where they're going to be using the input from the folks who are currently in office or if they should wait for the new slate to be elected and then say, hey, where do you want your offices to be? When I get the emails about the updates, uh, you know, there's some stuff as a city employee, you would think we got more information, but not really. Um, they, they, <laughs> they use a lot of words to say not a lot. Um, but my, my current understanding is that at least for the internal stuff, 
city hall renovations are being pushed out a few months. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the commissioners will stay in city hall until the start until July. And then they're going to shift over to the 1900 building. I'm unclear, but they're mm-hmm. pushing out the timelines because the commissioners don't want their work lives interrupted at this point, And that's kind of pushing everything else down the road a little bit. Um, I would love to have district offices. I think it makes way more sense I for think, somebody who's yeah. living in East Portland, for example, to go meet somebody who represents East Portland in East Portland. You yes. shouldn't have to come 20 minutes, you know, over an interstate, which might end up getting told here sometime in the near future. Uh, you know, you should be able to see your representatives in the areas you represent. I, uh, it's funny if you attend the city council meetings, you'll notice that some of the commissioners are still uh, attending via Zoom. So mm-hmm. the argument that they have to stay in City Hall until the bitter end to be able to f- be effective is just really strange to me. Uh, that's a little bit of my commentary. Yeah. The, um, the council's position on remote work is also a little uh, interesting two-step uh, that, that goes back and forth. Of It's great when it's convenient for them to have people work remotely, but they've instituted this requirement 20 hours a week um, for everybody. You have to report into the office because apparently – your lunch and your parking fees are going to revitalize downtown. Oh, bonkers. Right. I, I had yes. not heard that. Of course. Um, yeah, and we have these these budget issues, but let's make sure we keep leasing this downtown office space. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, again, we want people to be able to access services, right? So we don't want to say no one needs to be in the office because, frankly, right. some things have to be done in person. You can't turn the the water pumps on and off remotely. And even if you could, I'm not sure if you should. Right. Uh, <laughs> But the uh, the flip side of that is as much as the return to office, the uh, mandate has been discussed, something that's missing is what about the people who have been every day reporting in person? What about the people who during the, the height of lockdown and all of the, you know, the dangerous conditions that, that were created just frankly because we didn't have vaccines yet, we didn't have treatments yet, you know, there were folks who the the way the city handled it was they isolated you into shift groups so that you didn't have too much crossover between shift groups. Um, and eventually we got protective gear, right? Eventually we got some, some more options. But outside of the occasional, like, attaboy, there has been nothing done for folks who reported every day in person, never had a, a opportunity to work remotely. And instead of acknowledging that and trying to provide some sort of uh, compensation or even just acknowledgement of what people did and what they're missing out on, you know, council's response has just been to say, well, it's not fair if someone gets to work remotely because of that. So we're going to say, let's shift everybody back to the office. So you're wearing your solidarity T-shirt. I am. Uh, you are a union person. So uh, what's your what's your take on what's going on now with the uh, the teacher strike? I think Pat, the uh, Portland Association of Teachers, I think they are doing an amazing job of making the case to their community about what it is that they want. You know, it's not hard. Hot, cold, rats, mold. This is getting really old. I mean, these are base level things of we should be in an environment. You, Your kids, your kids should be in an environment where they're safe, where they're healthy, where we have the resources we need. Um, I think the bargaining for the common good approach, this this idea of they're not just asking for money for teachers, they're actually asking for things that are going to benefit students and communities. Um, I think that is how we are going to move forward. 
You know, with with unions, one of the first things you learn is an injury to one is an injury to all. And so me, for example, I have a good union job. I've got good benefits. I was able to buy a house in the city of Portland. Like I am set, but that doesn't mean I'm done because I'm not done until everybody else that I know has those same opportunities. It's frankly not fair. It's not fair that somebody who works in a bar or a restaurant is just kind of expected to scrape by and make a living because it's not a, a quote, real job, but it is. We all love going out to eat. And if we want that to keep happening, we need to support the folks who are growing our food, cooking our food, and serving our food. And so with the with the Portland teachers and the the issue with the district right now, it's it's hard to know what the reality is on the numbers because the district is giving different numbers. The state mediator is trying to bring the two bargaining teams together. But I think if nothing else, I, I feel like Portland, the community, the people in Portland are on the side with the teachers uh, because what they're asking for isn't too much. It isn't even that much if you think about everything we expect teachers to do in the classroom. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, Chris Flannery, thank you for being on the Progress Portland podcast. Uh, it'll be exciting to watch your campaign as it unfolds. Uh, do you have an event coming up or something you want to plug? Also, please tell us how to find you. So you can find me at chrisforportland.com, C-H-R-I-S-F-O-R, portland.com. Um, I am participating in the Small Donor Elections Program, so I'm trying to raise at least $5 donations from 250 Portlanders. If you like what you hear, please help me get those matching funds. Um, I am working on nailing down a date for a launch party. Um, I'm having a conversations with a local restaurant. I really appreciate their model. They, uh, they don't do tipping. They pay a living wage, and they do profit sharing with their employees. So mm. I'm, I'm stoked and, and can't wait to get the, the date on the book so I can start inviting folks. And I hope you all will be able to make it. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thanks again. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for listening. This has been the Progress Portland Podcast. Our theme music is The Acrobats by the Portland band Helvetia. Please join us next time.